Welcome to the sermon podcast of Grace Presbyterian Church. For more information about our church, please visit our website, gracechurchlaunceston.com. Sorry, Sarah told me this week of a student she had last year in her school. She's a school teacher. And as kids do, they talk about everything that happens in their life to the teachers, just so that you are aware of that. Um, They share all sorts of information with their teachers. But the thing that the student kept quiet last year, the thing that Sarah didn't actually know about this particular child in her class, that this child was one of four in the family. Sarah thought that this child was an only child all year and didn't, she didn't actually know this information until last week. She only just found out that he had brothers and sisters. Sometimes we don't have the complete picture. Sometimes we just don't know the information. In the life of Jesus, there have been examples, there have been examples time and again when people haven't got the full picture about Jesus. And that's what's going on in today's passage. And indeed, right across Mark's gospel, the religious leaders, we've met them before as we've gone through Mark each um, Sunday. Uh, not, yeah, it's probably been nearly two years we've been going through Mark in bits and pieces. We've seen time and again the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the pastor theologians of the day, they miss things about Jesus. They miss things about the very Messiah that they had hoped for. And this is much more important than not knowing information about a family. It's so important that salvation itself rests on this information. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark over the last year or so, the big question that the book has been asking time and time again is, who is Jesus? That's the big idea of Mark, if you like, the big question that it's asking us. The book wants us to have a complete picture of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, to show us who Jesus is. But the thing is, we meet these people time and again who have misunderstood Jesus. They don't quite get who he is. They haven't got the complete picture. And it's often because they don't want to know it. They don't want to know what Jesus is saying. They don't want to believe in who Jesus is. And sadly, it can be the same for us today. You know, Jesus is seen by many as a good teacher, a moral uh, influencer, a miracle worker, a prophet, um, someone to follow, all true things. But is that it? Is that all that Jesus is? In this passage, Jesus speaks to people who have some knowledge of who the Messiah is. And it's true knowledge. But they've missed something so important, so crucial to who the Messiah is that to miss it is to miss out, to miss being a part of God's family. But if we get it, if we get it here today, if we hear and believe, it's good news for us that Jesus is Lord. That's the good news of this this section. Jesus is Lord. That's what he wants us to know here. And he wants us to respond to this truth by believing in him and living for his kingdom. Jesus is Lord. There's no salvation apart from that truth, that Jesus is is Lord. So we're in the chronological week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, um, his death at the cross, and it comes in a couple of chapters, three chapters time, and the last few chapters of Mark's gospel are really jam-packed. This is, a, this is a, just over a few days. And so we come to chapter 12, and Jesus has been facing a series of questions 
uh, by uh, various religious leaders of the day. Jesus is in the temple courts, he's in an area of the temple area, and he's getting a barrage of questions thrown at him. But if you look there, verse 34, just before our reading, it's got to the point where no one has dared ask him, ask him any more questions. They've asked question after question. And Jesus has answered their questions so well, in fact, that they have given up. They can't fool Jesus. They can't trap Jesus. He's outwitted them. But the thing is, Jesus keeps going. He's not finished with them yet. His opponents are being outwitted, but Jesus wants to keep going. He wants to interrogate them. In our passage today, Jesus has a question for the people around him. Verse 35 says, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? Yeah, okay. The scribes or the teachers of the law, they say the Messiah is the son of David. Why do they think the Messiah is the son of David? Well, you might be thinking, well, yes, the Messiah is the son of David. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? Why is the Messiah the son? Why do they say the Messiah is the son of David? Who is David? He's Israel's greatest king. He extended the borders of Israel to, from Dan to Beersheba. That's a big area. He reigned with wisdom and he was a military genius. Uh, he built cities. That's David. He transformed society. He, he solidified a nation. He was a shepherd by trade and then a shepherd by trade as a king. He was a, a shepherd king. He was a poet. He wrote Psalms. He was a great leader. He was the greatest king of Israel that ever was. And his reign is considered the golden age of God's people. 2 Samuel 7, it says the promise to King David from God was that there'd be a son who'd sit on the throne and reign forever. King David's reign through his son would, would go on forever. That was the promise that God made to David. And yet... This is the thing. And yet by the time David's son, just the next generation, when Solomon came to the throne, who we think is wise, but really is not so wise, Solomon was on the throne, just David's son, and by the time that Solomon was off the throne, the kingdom's wheels had fallen off. By the end of Solomon, the kingdom was divided in civil war, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the kingdom was divided in north and south. The golden age was finished and it got worse and worse and worse and worse. So the people longed for David. They longed for the Messiah, the son of David, a Davidic king. They longed for someone who came, who would restore David's house. There would be, and the promise was in 2 Samuel 7, a descendant on the throne of David, a monarchy that would last forever. They longed for this. They put their hope in David's son, so much so there was great expectation of the Davidic king. There would be a king like David that would conquer and reign and rule, and particularly take out the Romans and free Israel, and it'd be all good. And we've seen this in Mark's gospel, this expectation even in the previous two chapters, Bartimaeus, remember that guy? Bartimaeus, chapter 10 of Mark, called out to Jesus. What did he say? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, 
What's he saying? Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the son of David. And Jesus accepted that title and said, your faith has healed you, Bartimaeus. And chapter 11, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's he riding on? A colt, a donkey. And what do the crowd say? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. We want David's son. That's what they're saying. We want the Messiah. The scriptures promise it. The Jews longed for it. And Jesus accepts it as a title for who he is. So why does he ask the question? What's wrong with what they're saying here? What's wrong with what they're teaching? What have they missed? Surely it's right to say that the Messiah is the son of David. Why does he dig into this point? Well, verse 36, David himself, verse 36, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? What's Jesus saying here? Notice what he's saying. What is he saying about his son? What's David saying about his son? The very son that everyone was expecting as the Messiah. What, what are they, what's he saying? David calls him my Lord. And that's it. David calls him my Lord. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 110. And I hope you can flick over there as I speak. Before we dive into Psalm 110, though, we need to get in our teeth into what Jesus is saying here. Just a little point, verse 36. It says there, David said, by the Holy Spirit. You see how Jesus understood Psalm 110? And really how Jesus understood the Scriptures? He didn't just read Psalm 110 as merely beautiful poetry written by David, as prose, or he didn't view David's poetry like we might read Shakespeare. Um, you might love or not like Shakespeare. Maybe you're not even enforced to read it at school anymore. I don't know. Um, Jesus didn't read the Old Testament as, his, as he would read classical literature, like Great Expectations or, I don't know, Moby Dick or Jane Eyre, A Room with a View. Um, Jesus viewed the Old Testament as he viewed David. Uh, he viewed David writing as God's Word. That's, what it, what's, that's the point. It says... David said, by the Holy Spirit. He believed the Old Testament's God's Word, inspired Scripture. And this is how we are to approach Scripture as well. It's not a matter of picking, about, picking out bits we like or not like, or we, we're to submit to God's Word because it's God's Word. David said, by the Holy Spirit. It carries the weight and authority of divine words. So when Jesus quotes the Bible, Psalm 110, he's saying, this, what, this is what it means. It has a meaning. This is what God is saying. So you've got to listen to it and pay attention and, and submit to what he says. It's more than classical literature. It's God's word. It's inspired scripture. So Psalm 110, it's a remarkable psalm. By the way, um, it's the most quoted and most alluded to psalm or actually Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Uh, it's a very important passage of scripture. I'm going to read it out again. Psalm 110 says, Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing, to, uh, willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, so he will lift his head high. So look there. Who's, it's written by David, verse 1. It's of David. But if you look at verse 1 again, it's more importantly for our sermon today, we see the word Lord mentioned twice there. First one, Lord, capital letters. Um, when you see capital L-O-R-D, it's the, it's the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. And then you see the lowercase Lord, Adonai. Uh, it's the normal title for God in the Old Testament. So what do we got here? You've got, you got to think a little bit. What's going on? What we have here is David writing a psalm about a conversation that's happened. What we have here is Yahweh having a conversation with someone who is given the title Adonai, Lord. In most cases in the Old Testament, Adonai is a title that belongs to God, Yahweh. So we have God's name and God's title, Yahweh speaking to the Lord. God is calling someone else Adonai. This Lord will be, in the, in the words of Psalm 110, is a king who rules... The Lord has a place of authority. Verse 1, he sits at God's right hand. And this Lord conquers his enemies and judges his enemies, verses 5 to 7. This is a conquering psalm, isn't it? It's a kingly psalm, a victorious psalm. But the Lord is also a priest, if you notice there in the middle. But not an ordinary priest in the order of Aaron, which all other priests were, but a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's a rabbit trail I could go down, but I'm not going to resist the temptation. Um, Melchizedek was a priest king. He, uh, we meet him in Genesis 14, and we, he's explained, his significance is explained in Hebrews chapter 7. Read it for yourself another time. So, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, that's the argument Jesus is picking up in, in, in Mark 12, the Lord said to my Lord... Who's the sovereign over the king of Israel? That would be God. So in Psalm 110, God is having a conversation with God, who is identified as David's Lord. And so what's he, what's, what's he saying, Jesus, here to these scholars? What's he correcting here? What's the Holy Spirit saying? If David calls the Messiah my Lord, how then can he be his son? Now, a parent doesn't say to their child uh, that their child is their Lord. Now, that doesn't happen, does it? Lord Ned. <laughs> King David wouldn't have dreamt about writing about his son as his Lord. Unless his son, his descendant, was above him, unless his son, his descendant, was more than his son, he wouldn't have called his son his Lord unless his son was more than a mere human king. David was the greatest of human kings. Who is David's Lord? His Lord could only be someone who existed before him and after him, and in fact, is truly above him, God himself. God, his king. 
Jesus is teaching something profound here in Mark 12. Something the teachers of the law hadn't understood. They don't have the full picture of the Messiah. You see? They don't have the full, complete picture. They didn't understand what the psalm was teaching about the Messiah. They didn't see that this great psalm about the Messiah gave away crucial information about the Messiah's identity. That the Messiah, in fact, is God himself. God, their king, who rules and reigns and conquers and is a priest in the terms of Psalm 110. This is more than an academic question for them and for us because why does Jesus ask this? Why does he confront this teaching? Because he wants the crowds to think about who he is. He wants to correct a wrong understanding of the Messiah that was being taught and understood all around him, but most importantly, he wants people to think about the person there in front of them. He wants people to understand who he is. He wants the crowds, he wants the teachers of the law, he wants you, he wants me to know that he's more than just a guy, just even a king. We need this information that Jesus is more than a mere human king. He is David's Lord. He's our Lord. He's greater than David. He's the greatest there is. He's the Lord, God incarnate. Very God of very God, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, when we think about the, the work of Jesus, the work of Christ, we think about his birth rightly at Christmas time. We think we celebrate Christmas. We think about his life. We think about his death. Crucially, his death, which is central for our salvation. We think about Jesus' resurrection, uh, which is a vindication of all that Jesus has accomplished in his life and death. Uh, we think about Jesus' work in sending him the Holy Spirit. We think of Pentecost. And we think about the return of Christ at the end, and we long for that day. But one aspect of the work of Christ that is so often overlooked and so important for us is the thing that Jesus highlights here. It's underlined in Psalm 110. It's known in the old language, the old language, as the session of Christ. The session of Christ. Uh, you know, you might know, you probably, maybe you do, that we're led by a body of elders here at our church. That's how our church is led. And you might even know that the group of elders is called a session. Why is it called a session? Because as the elders meet, as we hopefully will this week, uh, we meet to talk about the church and pray and, and make decisions and figure out things. We sit down and we discuss these things together. The word session simply means seated. Session means seated. The most important session that, that happens in this universe doesn't, won't happen on probably Thursday afternoon. It doesn't even happen, the most important session it doesn't even take place in, in Parliament. Uh, the most important session is when Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. The most important session takes place in heaven. Jesus, sit down, ascend to the throne, take your place of authority over the whole universe. That's the session of Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 3.21 says, Jesus has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, 
authorities and powers having been subject to him. Jesus speaks to Caiaphas, the high priest, Matthew 26. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He's speaking about himself there. After Jesus finished his ministry on earth through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, through the ascension, he takes the throne. He's enthroned at the right hand of God. He's seated. His government is in session. And all his enemies are put under his feet as his gospel is preached and his kingdom expands. And one day this universe, this world will be all united in praise and worship of God in his kingdom. And this means that the most powerful person in Australia at the moment isn't a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. This, it isn't Elon Musk or some other name. The one with the most power in, this, in Australia isn't a field marshal in the Australian Army or the Admiral of the Fleet. The most powerful person in this universe is not the person with the most views on YouTube or certainly isn't the Prime Minister. The one with the highest authority in Australia and indeed all creation has the seat of power in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. Do you know this? Do you know this? As Christians, we, we live in a kingdom. You've heard that word before, the kingdom of God. We are under a king who is seated. His government's in session. We are under the king of kings and lord of lords. And that reign has already started. Jesus is lord. That means he is reigning. He is the Lord, he will rule, and all his enemies are put under his feet, as the psalm says, as his kingdom is preached, 1 Corinthians 15. And one day this world will be totally subject to him. One day there will no longer be a kingdom of darkness. One day there will no longer be people who say, no way, I'm not going to listen to Jesus. Christ alone is worthy of our highest allegiance and we're to live for him and his eternal kingdom. Jesus is, in, the, in terms of Psalm 110, he's a, he's a king who reigns and decimates his enemies, a Lord who is a priest, who is mighty, yet laid down his life to bear our sins, even to death. Jesus is the Lord, he's God, who we pray, come Lord Jesus, Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus, bring about your justice. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, verse 37, Mark 12, this crowd listened to Jesus with delight. Now, I don't know how much they actually understood what Jesus is saying here, uh, but they're pretty impressed. They like what he's saying. They're glad with what they hear from Jesus. And so the question is, just as they responded with delight at Jesus' message here, does this truth, this truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is David's Lord, he is our Lord, does this truth fill us with the same joy? Are we delighted with this truth? Maybe for some of us, the Lordship of Jesus is something we need to be reminded of. The Lordship of Jesus means that he is in charge. 
And I don't, I don't know what you've experienced in your life, perhaps in your childhood, or perhaps you've experienced some truly evil things. Maybe a great injustice. Maybe you need today to, to know the comfort of knowing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. That he is seated on the throne. And that no one is beyond his judgment. He's the Lord of Psalm 110. But maybe for others of us, you don't know what to do with Jesus. You don't really know what to do with his lordship. And I want to say you can't remain agnostic on it for very long. Jesus doesn't let you get away with sitting on the fence. Please ask questions and come to church and read the Bible and talk with us, but please see that Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord. He's making a claim here that demands our allegiance, all of us. He's saying, I'm king, I'm God, I'm, I'm seated at God's right hand. And he offers us a way to join his kingdom if we would believe in him. Uh, Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe this? Believe in him. Say that you are my Lord. I trust you. I want to live for you. To be a Christian is to join in King Jesus' kingdom. It's to name him as your Lord and to live for your king. It's to place your hope and everything into his care. It's to trust this king and to say, you are my Lord and I'm not the Lord. And I think that's the most liberating and wonderful thing in the world. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, come to the Lord's Supper now.